Years ago, in Mexico, my aunt woke up and opened her eyes just in time to see a large chunk of ceiling break off and fall down towards her. That's when she woke up, screaming, still feeling the terror from the dream. She was away from home, visiting Mexico City. She finished off the rest of the vacation, but something felt off. She'd had such dreams before. And, more often than not, those dreams usually meant something. After a few days, they made the trip back home. They arrived to find their home had flooded. The flood had been upstairs. They went room to room, inspecting the damage. When my aunt and uncle looked into their bedroom, they saw that a large chunk of ceiling had fallen on the bed and had landed exactly where she normally slept. I'm Albi Robles, and I want you to scare me. I'm going to start working with other independent podcasters from time to time so we can help promote each other. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a great new podcast called Deadly Debbie's Creepy Files. You can find information on this podcast in today's show notes. Now, here's the trailer. Well, hello there, little black kitties of the night. Come and join me, your host, Deadly Debbie, as we go through my creepy files and listen to real-life strange but true stories from people all over the world. Explore the weird and wonderful in my weekly podcast with Deadly Debbie's Creepy Files. <laughs> Matt Metcalf Armstrong is an archaeologist who lives and works in Central California. He's an avid collector of ghost stories and presents both stories and his analysis on the podcast Ghostropology. My name is Matthew Metcalf Armstrong. By training and actually by job, I'm an archaeologist. Um, you know, you see those lists every year of the most useless majors, and they always list anthropology at the top because they say you can only use this degree if you teach. Now, there's actually an entire industry built around it uh, called cultural resource management, and I'm part of that industry. I've always been a fan of ghost stories. I've always enjoyed them. Um, horror fiction, I'm kind of hit and miss on, but the stories that people tell that supposedly happened to them or local legends have always fascinated me. Uh, many years ago, I started a blog back when everybody was keeping blogs uh, called uh, Sluggo's House of Spookiness. And... Uh, on it, I kept track of ghost stories I collected. And um, over the last few months, uh, my wife, who is a podcaster herself, uh, she does pages and popcorn, um, she suggested that I turn that blog into a podcast. So I've been working at that. And a few episodes in, I realized that um, I didn't just have a podcast on my hands, I had a research project because I've always been fascinated by why we tell ghost stories, what commonalities and differences you get between different ghost stories, how ghost stories and ghost uh, folklore is expressed in different cultures. And 
uh, what happens when those cultures blend together. And I realized as I began writing scripts for my podcast, which is called Ghostropology, that um, I was really beginning to think a lot more about that. And so and from simply being a uh, podcast where I was going to share stories with people to being a podcast where I'm doing some level of analysis and uh, essentially it's turned into field work for a study of ghost folklore. And I don't know where that's going to go, but so far it's been fun and I think it'll produce something interesting. I live in central California and, um, you know, we had a lot of people who moved into this area during the 1930s from the South and the Midwestern U.S., um, and they brought a lot of their folklore with them. So a lot of it's Germanic. A lot of it is um, Irish and Scottish. Um, but then you also ended up with these um, stories that you know, had already been here because of the native peoples of the area. And then another layer on that is, of course, California used to be part of Mexico. And so we have a huge amount of Spanish and Mexican folklore as part of our local folklore. I mean, I think every river that I know of has a La Llorona story associated with it. I think we have a fascination and a desire in many cases to feel scared for a few reasons. Um, one is it's just an emotional catharsis. I mean, um, why do we watch depressing movies or read depressing stories? We don't want to be depressed, but it does give us an emotional release to, you know, watch Dr. Zhivago, for example. Um, similarly, like I'm a fan of Pink Floyd and I know a lot of people consider their music very depressing, but when I hear the songs that are considered depressing, it gives me a sense of fellowship. It's like, okay, things are, things are all right because somebody else has been there. And I think scary stories serve a, uh, a very similar um, function in that they let you experience being scared while you're safe. Um, and I think that when they're, you know, this goes whether you're talking about horror movies, Stephen King novels, or people telling you freaky stories. Um, and I think that that's true regardless of the nature of the scary story. But when it's a scary story that is supposedly true and real, so somebody tells you about the uh, ghost that roams your hometown, somebody tells you about their encounter with, you know, a spirit. Somebody tells you about, um, you know, the thing that their friend who's a cop told them occurred. It adds a layer to that. It takes away some of your need to suspend disbelief because you're being told the story as if it's true. You're still perfectly safe hearing the story, but you're not having to put as much work into it as you would be if you were, you know, reading a Stephen King novel. You know, I think, um, a lot of the ghost stories that really have some staying power generally are associated with something that you can uh, link to an aspect of your life, you know, whether you want to or not. Um, we've all been in that situation where we just happen to be in the wrong place and we happen to be the one that something bad happened to. My wife and I recorded an episode of uh, Ghostropology, which was about the Amityville haunting. And we were talking about the reason why that story caught on when a lot of similar stories don't. And I think a lot of it had to do with when it came out, you know, in the late 1970s or actually mid 1970s, 
you had the baby boomers really beginning to take on family um, responsibilities as parents and home ownership. And the story of Amityville, almost every frightening event in some way associates with the family or the home. So, you know, you've got people in a increasingly precarious economic situation having to support a family and trying to take care of owning a home and being very frightened of that. Well, the Amityville story lets you externalize that fear. So, you know, instead of saying, well, I'm afraid because maybe I'm not up to being a parent, maybe I'm not up to these responsibilities, maybe I'm not up to paying a mortgage, you can say, I'm afraid because that house is haunted and it's making my family behave in really horrible ways. And, uh, you know, I think that um, ghost stories can allow us to express fears that we might not be willing to express otherwise. I mean, not just ghost stories, but really any scary story has that potential. Um, you know, I mean, stories about serial killers really picked up in the 1970s as people were, you know, beginning to grapple with many of the same factors that the Amityville story dealt with and where at a point in time when crime in cities was increasing, it was a way of expressing those fears. Um, you know, my own interest is in supernatural stories, but you can say the same, I think, of almost any scary story. Well, and the obsession with true crime is itself, I think, really a pretty interesting phenomenon because if you look at the actual crime statistics, there's been an uptake over, uptick over the last few years in violent crime, but violent crime really peaked in the 90s. And, um, you know, we are at a low point a little higher now than it was a few years ago, but still not rampant. Um, and yet, you know, true crime stories, especially about some of the more grisly crimes, are more popular than ever. I think it's a way for us to, you know, process the fact that because we've got all of this input coming in telling us to be afraid, um, even though our day-to-day -day lives are actually very, very safe, um, you know, I think that it's a way for people to try to live in that duality where what they're actually seeing is not the same as what they're hearing. My first episode uh, was 50 Berkeley Square, which I wasn't sure when I should do that because I had only recently come across it again. But when I was a kid, my parents used to buy us these books of allegedly true ghost stories. Um, and I, I was a weird kid. I was really, really timid. Um, I could not stand to watch a horror movie, but I was also weirdly fascinated. So my sister and my mother would watch horror movies, and I'd kind of walk through the room trying to look at the screen and not look at the screen simultaneously. But one of the ways I was able to satisfy that urge was by reading these books. Um, and they were almost always poorly written, you know, they were not great books, but they contained these stories just fired up my imagination. And one of them, I do not know the title of the book. I haven't seen it in, I don't know, 35 years, but it told a story of what the author of the book said was the most haunted house in London. And I could not remember what city it was in. I could not remember what, um, 
what the address was, any of that. I could just remember that it was the most haunted house somewhere in England. And I'd go looking for that, and I kept pulling at the Borley Rectory, which the Borley Rectory is an interesting story in of itself. But it never had one element from this story that really freaked me out. Well, a few months ago, I came across a YouTube channel that told creepy stories. And they had a thing on 50 Berkeley Square. And for whatever reason, I suddenly realized that's it. I watched the video, and yes, it was. So the gist of the story is that a young woman back in the late 18th century lived in a house with her uncle in uh, Berkeley Square in London. And her uncle was horribly abusive. Um, The details of the abuse are never really made clear in any version of the story I've come across. So she jumped out the window and uh, killed herself. Well, after that, um, people claimed that they would see the specter of a young woman in the house, and especially on the top floor where her room was. Well, time passes, the house is sold, it's bought by a series of different owners. So a uh, man named Thomas Myers eventually moved in, and things were looking good for him. He was um, fairly wealthy. He was looking to get married. Everything looked great. But then his fiance broke off the engagement. And afterwards, he basically became a recluse who just kind of slept all the time, occasionally got up, wandered the house at weird hours. Um, and the house began to fall into disrepair, it became very creepy looking, and uh, got a reputation for being haunted. Well, a series of events occurred there. Some of them occurred before Myers moved in, some of them afterwards. Um, The first that you find routinely reported is that in 1840, a young man named Robert Warboys, who appears to have been a student, um, was drinking with some friends nearby, and they got to talking about the house, and he heard that it was haunted. It was a place that you should not go. And, you know, danger would follow you if you went there, you know, the usual, usual stuff. <clears throat> so being drunk and full of testosterone, he demanded that, um, the owner of the house, let him in, showed up at the door late at night, pounded on it. The owner didn't want to let him in, but eventually agreed to, but said, I'm going to let you in, but you need to be armed. And you need to uh, pull this uh, rod that'll, uh, or this um, rope that'll ring a bell if anything happens. So the story is that he did go into the room um, that was allegedly the most haunted in the house. Uh, It may or may not be the room from which the young woman had thrown herself. And, you know, late into the night, the landlord heard the sound of gunshots and he heard the bell ringing. And he got up there and found Warboy in the room, just cowering. His pistol had been fired. Smoke was still coming from the barrel. There's a bullet embedded in the wall. But Warboys didn't say anything. He ran out of the house. And in some stories, he's said to have been dead or catatonic when the landlord arrived. But regardless, he never said to anybody what it was he saw. Well, after that, Thomas Myers moves in. Um, Again, Thomas Myers is engaged to be married. He's quite wealthy. His fiance breaks off the engagement, and Thomas Myers goes a little bit nuts. Um, 
he becomes a recluse and basically avoids leaving the house, if at all possible. Um, and there's some people who claim that Charles Dickens used Thomas Myers as the um, inspiration for Miss Havisham in um, in uh, Great Expectations. Well, eventually he leaves the house. Either he dies and the house is sold or somebody else uh, buys it from him and he goes. Eventually another family buys it. Now, this family has a daughter who's engaged to a uh, officer in the British military. And one day the maid is making up one of the upstairs room. It's never really made clear if it's the same room that war boys had been in, or if it's a room that the young woman had uh, thrown herself out the window of, but um, she's making up the room and the family hears her scream. They go in and they find her just cowering on the floor, gibbering, and she eventually is sent to a hospital where she dies, never having become in any way sensible again. Captain Kent, the officer to which the daughter was um, engaged, decided that he was going to stay in that room anyway. And uh, you know, the family all goes to bed. One night, they hear a gunshot, and when they get up, He's catatonic, and he dies sometime thereafter, never having recovered his senses. And then the final story that you'll frequently hear associated with this house involves two sailors. Now, depending on the story, some people say this happened in 1887. Some people say it happened during World War One, or even during World War Two. Well, these sailors um, were looking for a place to stay that wouldn't cost them any money. They saw this boarded-up old house. They decided to break into it. And in some tellings, they went upstairs and some, they stayed in the basement, but all of these have the same conclusion, which is that in the middle of the night, one of the sailors woke up and he saw his companion being strangled by something, uh, some gelatinous tentacled creature. And on seeing that, he freaks out and he runs. He goes to get a police officer. The police officer comes on up. They find the body and the man is dead. His neck's broken. His head's twisted around in an, un in an unnatural position. And sometimes it's said that he has suction cups on his neck like what you would expect from an octopus. Uh, suction cup marks on his neck like you would expect from an octopus. And... Nobody really knows what this thing that killed him was, but people naturally begin asking, is this the same thing that war boys saw, that Captain Kent saw, that the maids saw? So those are the well-known stories. But then there's other things that people will tell you about the place. Um, you know, you've got the general people walk by and feel like they're being watched. People have this creepy feeling when they're near it. It had been a rare bookstore at one point and this is one of those too odd to make it up elements allegedly the people who owned the bookstore had bought napoleon bonaparte's penis in an auction and had it stored there make of that what you will but uh, it remained in the hands of the bookstore up until the early 21st century and during a lot of that time the upstairs of the house were off limits um 
Probably this is because of damage that it sustained during the London Blitz. But of course, a lot of people say that the real reason it's off limits is that there was something monstrous or ghostly up there. The element of the story that just stuck with me from my childhood is one that actually only shows up in a few versions of the story that you can find, which is that some people say that when you're in the house, if you're very unlucky, you will see a dense patch of smoke that's shaped like a human, but with empty holes where the mouth and the eyes would be, and that it may come after you. And if it does, you're just done for. You're not getting out of this. Um, But if you're lucky, you may be able to escape it. Oddly, although I find that to be the creepiest part of the story, it's not something that uh, tends to get talked about. People seem to be far more fascinated with the idea that there's some weird-ass dryland octopus wandering around the house, which uh, I can see where some people might find that creepy, but I just find it kind of silly. But I don't know. Something about that smoke, not-quite-person wigs me out and has ever since I was a kid. We have a family ghost story, which I've never actually experienced any of the things that my sisters and my father claim to have experienced, but, you know, I don't think they're making it up. You know, I think that they had an experience that they can't make sense of. And so they, you know, explain it the way they do. When my great grandfather died on my father's side, my grandparents lived in this old house um, that they actually built uh, post-World War II. My grandfather was a soldier in World War II. And when he came back, he built a house from a kit. I think they got it from Sears and Roebuck. Um, House was well built, but it was creaky. You could tell where in the house people were based on the sound of the footsteps. And if you were accustomed to who was in the house, you could sometimes even tell who was in what room by how much it creaked. Um, And after my great-grandfather died, Several members of my family, including my sisters and my father, said that when they were in that house at night, they would hear somebody come up the stairs from the garage. The house is built on a hill, so the uh, back of it was two stories with the garage as the bottom story, and the front of it was one story. They would hear somebody come up the stairs, which were extraordinarily creaky, open the door, And they could hear this person walk through the house. But if you got out of bed and you went around to see, you know, who it was, you never found anybody. So when they asked my grandfather who it was, he would just say that it was his father just coming to check up on him and make sure everybody was okay. Well, my grandfather died in 1996. And when he died, um, my grandmother told me, all that sound stopped in the house. She never heard it again after that. Uh, But my father and at least two of my sisters tell me that in my father's house, which he since sold, but while he was living there, they would hear a car pull up in the driveway, somebody open the front door, and then somebody walk around. But when they went to check, front door was locked. Nobody was in the house, you know. Um, and so my father took that to be that his father was coming to check up on everyone. You hear about some of these things and because I have an interest in ghost stories, people often ask me, uh, you know, if I believe in ghosts and I think that's the wrong question. You know, 
I don't necessarily believe in ghosts and that. I don't necessarily think the spirits of the dead are coming back to, you know, spook us. But people definitely have experiences that they don't understand. And some of those experiences are definitely explainable. Like a lot of ghost stories can be explained by things like sleep paralysis or, you know, fatigue. I know of one famous case where carbon monoxide poisoning actually explained the entire thing. But but then you get other ones where I have no idea how to explain that. But clearly this person had an experience that made a huge impression on them. So you can't just dismiss that. Do you want to try to scare me? If you've had or have heard about a paranormal experience you'd like to share, or if the area you live in has a particularly scary legend or lore, I want to hear it. Send an email to scareme at albirobelesvoice.com. Scare Me is produced by Albie Robles Voice and features original music by Adam Clifton. Additional sound beds are provided by Stephen D. Voiceovers. You can follow us on social media. We are Scare Me Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For voiceover booking information or to inquire about having your own podcast produced, go to www.albirobelesvoice.com. <laughs>